This is Loika Darkroom. This is where we share stories and celebrate the success of photographers in the Web3 space. I'm your host, Pam Voth. Let's go into the darkroom and see what develops. Welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of Slika Darkroom. Uh, I'm your host, Pam Voth, and we're here today with a really special guest, Alpha Trilogy, who's one of the major collectors in the NFT space, and we're going to talk to him about the things he collects and why he collects and what he does with the things he collects. Um, I'm also joined by our co-host, The Boat, who is actually has a piece that um, Alpha just recently collected, I believe, so we're going to talk about that a bit. Hey, Sabod. Oh, God. Okay. I was about to retweet into the Sloika telegram <laughs> and you called me in. And I made, a, okay. I, made a type, I made a typo with Alpha's name now. People are wondering, who is this new collector? But oh, it's geez. okay. okay. <laughs> typos, typos are forgiven. Um, <laughs> hi. And then we're also here with Ev, who is a co-founder of Sloika. And he will be talking with us about some nerd talk. And I know he has some questions for Alpha along the way, too. Um, but thank you for all uh, for listening, and um, we're just going to kick it off. Um, welcome, Alpha. So glad that you could join us today. Very glad to be here. So thanks for having me. Hello, everybody in the room. Um, I didn't actually prepare for today, so I'm going to be um, just answering off the cuff. So if I uh, mess okay. up, you'll have to forgive me. Well, this isn't going to be a graded question um, set, so um, I think I think we'll ask you things that are, are easy to answer. One thing I wanted to just say is congratulations and um, on all of the Sebastio Salgado pieces that I've seen that you've added. You're getting some really cool pieces there. Um, I bet it's been fun. How have you um, have you had a fun time collecting all those? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the drop is amazing. So I didn't know exactly what would be included because it was obviously um, done as a blind mint and they limited the they limited it initially to two pieces that any collector could um collect from the mint and they had a host of technical difficulties um in the mint process and so it really i think it probably had a huge negative impact on the mint itself um, they ended up changing it to where you could get a total of 10. And I think I've, I've collected it. I collected those 10 um, blind. I was able to pick up some on the secondary before they revealed. And then I've picked up quite a few um, once they revealed. I was completely um, shocked by the quality of a lot of the pieces that were released um, as part of this collection. Um, for a $250 mint price, it just seemed like, I mean, it seems like a um, it's an incredible opportunity. And the fact that the mint got messed up a little bit and it kind of killed the momentum of it, I think that even makes the opportunity that much bigger because I've been able to pick up some pieces that I just... I'm baffled that I was actually able to get um, on the secondary since the reveal um, just because of, you know, some people probably lost a little bit of faith, but I think that's a really short term um, reaction. And so there's still a lot of opportunity right now in that collection. Absolutely. Go ahead, Ev. Yeah. So normally we have nerd talk kind of like closer to the end, uh, but there's something I was collecting in one of the pieces by Salgado. And I realized that, and I, I don't know, Alpha, if you experienced that, that you have to complete like a, a pretty extensive KYC. And I'm wondering uh, how that went for you, whether 
um, you had to do that and whether you had to feel your real name or you did something special for that. Yeah, I did have to do that. And I went ahead and, you know, I didn't, I didn't fake my way through it. I went ahead and used my real name um, for the, for the process. I think it was a little bit, I think that process probably scared a lot of collectors off. In fact, I've talked to a lot of collectors that um, like did not mint because of that process. Um, it, it, it became kind of obvious, I think, during the process that they um, obviously Sotheby's knows art inside out, but they're still learning Web3. And I think they're still learning um, what those drivers are that probably help um you know, why, why the early people that are in Web3 right now, some of the reasons that they're there. And so I think they probably scared off a lot of um, collectors through that um, very cumbersome minting process. But, but it's up to you, right? You, you were able to, <laughs> to just, you know, go through that. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I bid on, they had a um, live auction on Salgado's first piece, and um, I did bid on that in their main auction. So it didn't really bother me per se to, um, you know, be to have to go through that process in order to to be able to to mint the other pieces. I mean, they already know who I am. So but I, I understand why it would be, you know, a little bit alarming for other people that are in Web3, you know, being very careful about doing things in a you know, decentralized world where you don't necessarily have to reveal who you are. Um, and it definitely, I think what it did is it cre- created a lot of opportunity on the secondary because there were people that were minting and flipping and there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity for people that didn't want to go through that process to go into the secondary and pick up some incredible pieces at crazy um, values. That's actually make make a lot of sense. You can basically wait for people to mint and then just uh, offer them a little more for anonymity if that's if that's important. I think it's actually quite interesting insight. Uh, and I think in in the auctions that I've seen, like Sotheby's have some of those auctions uh, on YouTube, and you can watch it. And there's always people on the phones, right, where you don't know who the buyer is, but uh, they're acting on the behalf of the particular buyer, uh, whether they have uh, a live instructions and they change, or whether they just have a limit and just go for that and you know talk to the phone uh, to like a dead a dead phone uh, in that case. So quite interesting dynamic in in this regard. Yeah, absolutely. So the room never knows who those um, buyers are, but obviously Sotheby's does, and so Sotheby's I think has came into this space, you know, using the background of how they sell in the physical world you know as a blueprint to some extent and so uh, just probably there's probably going to be a bit of a learning curve for them to be able to really um marry their process to something that's going to fit um the web3 world and and they have a lot of legal hurdles obviously that they have to be very conscious of and, and jump through so it Ultimately, um, it created a huge opportunity that still exists in the space. But my my belief is that that opportunity won't be there forever. Um, it's a short term opportunity, and so people that are um, you know like aggressively taking advantage of it right now probably will be very happy uh, about doing that in the future. 
And I'll just give a little bit of, um, for people, I had tons of people, you know, messaging me, hey, I see you're making offers on um, Salgado pieces. And I'll give you a little bit of a clue um, on how to do that and how it can actually work for you. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, more DGEN type um, people that do a lot of flipping that were going in and, and buying and minting on the, the Salgado work. And some of them came in real early on the initial hype side and pre-reveal um, collected pieces um, that they didn't really have any intention of, of keeping or holding long-term. And so what you can do if you're making offers is what I like to do is I, I scroll through, I look at the pieces, I find the actual images that really strike me for, for whatever reason and um, that I, I want hopefully to, to have a chance to own that image. And then I go in to make an offer on it. Um, but I look at who the owner is. And a lot of times, if I recognize the owner, I know that there's, there may be no chance. You know, if it's a, one of the collectors that I know well, you know, I know that they're not going to sell that to me on some kind of offer. But uh, most, of the, um, most of them, I don't recognize who they are. And so I'll actually click on their, that owner. I'll go in and look at their wallet and I can see really fast. Are they a fine art collector? Do they have a lot of photography that they've collected? If so, they're probably not really um, looking to, to, to sell that piece. But if it's a wallet and it's full of PFPs and um, gaming stuff, that type of thing, then I know that they bought it to flip. And so I have a lot higher um, chance of actually being able to, to, you know, collect that piece. And so I concentrate my offers, um, on wallets that are, um, obviously not fine art buyers. And so it's, it's a way that you can be fairly successful in picking up some really incredible pieces. And a lot of times those non fine art buyers don't necessarily know the difference between a piece that's really, really, you know, spectacular and just really, really good. That's true. I actually have seen that there's a very big difference. I think the floor price on Salgado is like 0.1 right now, which is like below the min price. But there's some sales that happened at like 4 ETH uh, in the last couple of days. And I'm like, wow, that's a big difference between uh, what most trades at and people who are realizing that there's some value once everything is revealed and you can start basically sniping, I guess, the, the best ones. Yeah, there was... Um there's one series within the collection. Um, it's a tribe that there's only 18 um, pieces in the entire 5,000 piece collection that are of that tribe. So they're really, really um, rare. And some of those pieces are just spectacular. And um, early on, I was able to pick up a couple of those via offers. Now, I didn't get them you know, super cheap. I, I think I got one for 1.69. And I bought one. Actually, it wasn't an offer. It was, um, I just saw it right when it was listed at 1.3. And those are literally, they're absolutely incredible grail pieces. And so, um, you know, Salgado's first, the first NFT, I think at the Sotheby's auction, it ended up selling or the bid at least was $96,000. So you kind of have to keep in mind, um, that some of these, some of these one of ones, you know, um, 
I think there could be a lot of value um, attributed to them in the future. And you think about they came via Sotheby's. Um, that means something. And at some point, you know, in the future, I would not be surprised if Sotheby's isn't a major um, player in the fine art uh, NFT market. Um, whether you like that or not, it's probably inevitable. And so when you have something that they've released and um, you're able to hold that into your collection, um, you might have a, you know, a better shot at liquidity in the future, you know, if, if that's something that's important to you. So it's just all those things are, are part of the reason why if anyone was paying attention to my wallet, I've, I think I've collected 35 of them so far and I'm definitely not done. Um, I think it's just one of those rare opportunities that you have um, in the early days of NFTs to be able to, to pick, some, pick up some really outstanding art at really, really, really affordable entry price. Yeah, I would say so. Um, it, it's it's so cool that you're taking advantage of that and um, and having some fun and some success at it too. Um, I, w- I was going to ask you. Um, I mean, I know so many people know you in the space, um, but I don't know if I've ever heard you answer like why art and when did your journey with collecting art first start? Can you kind of share that story with us? Yeah, I've collected art for. Um for quite a while um since i was in my early 20s and i've i've said in some spaces in the past that i i did a i was a buyer for a big importer uh, a decorative arts importer um in the late 90s early 2000s and i was literally i was super young and i was in a world of whereas dealers that were all at least two, usually three times my age. And um, I traveled a lot throughout Europe and I did a lot of buying. And so um, as part of that, I also started collecting. Um, I don't think you can be a serious buyer and not also a collector, even if most of what you're buying is being, um, and it ends up with um, mainly high-end interior designers that are ending up with the end results that are going into to people's homes and um, businesses. But um, I got to where I would love, I love to, to pick out the, what I thought at the time was grail pieces and hold them, keep them. And so I've always been, um, you know, since my, like literally my early twenties, I have been a pretty serious collector and I collect all different things. Um, but I, I love fine art, um, photography. I have had an interest in for a long time, but I've never collected photography to the extent, um, that I have since entering the NFT space. Um, to me, uh, the photography has like potentially a, a complete, I, I would almost say like genre changing role in fine art from the, the opportunity that web three provides for photography. And, um, I feel like almost it has the opportunity to even come become more respected and, and more known and more collectible because of this space. Um, so that's, that's exciting. And so it's exciting to be kind of in early, uh, uh, part of that. Well, I think, um, that's, that's uh, really great to hear. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the, the philosophy that, that we have at Slicka too, of 
being a photo only NFT, um, you know, platform, um, I think that there's a huge future uh, in the photography part of the NFT space. But good to hear your perspective on that, too. Um, and do you, do you remember the very first piece of art that you collected when you thought, I am collecting this, not just, you know, um, necessarily buying it for just like, oh, I'm just buying it, but like where you really felt that sort of like drive to start collecting? Um, yes and no. Um, I was actually in Denmark and I was in a warehouse and there were, the warehouse was full of antique oil paintings. And I was looking through these oil paintings and there was some, like, it was insane. Um, it's kind of hard to, when I talk about it, it's hard for most people to comprehend this, but there's a warehouse that's full of oil paintings. And um, I made a, a deal to buy the entire warehouse of oil paintings. I made some international calls. I had a motivated seller um, this seller had um, been a an estate buyer throughout Europe for about five decades, and they had put all the art into into warehouses, um, all the all the paintings at least into warehouses, and they never sold them um, because they were when they would buy estates, they would they would um, sell out the furniture, and they were an exporter. So they literally filled a warehouse over a period of about 50 years with um, oil paintings. And I made a deal and bought the entire um, warehouse full of oil paintings, which was multiple um, high cube containers of art that we brought back into the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, I was able to handpick pieces from that. That was pretty special. And so it was fun. So if you can imagine having thousands of paintings and having the luxury of being able to go through and pick ones that like really spoke to you, um, it was a really fun experience. Yeah. That sounds like a great experience. That sounds like you just found like the, the buried treasure. <laughs> Do you still have any of those pieces like hanging in a space that you can see them every day? Yes, I do. I have um, several of those pieces still hanging in my home. And even though my home's changed multiple times since then, um, there's a few of those pieces that I've always kept a um, space for. And some of the pieces I kept, I have now my own um, warehouse space where I have some of them stored still because I haven't been able to... Uh, um, sometimes when you collect, it's really hard to to uh, turn loose of certain things. And so even though I don't necessarily have the wall space for some of it, I still keep it. Um, so that's, that's part of, I guess, being a collector and possibly a hoarder. <laughs> well, we won't go into hoarding. <laughs> I, I know I moved into a place that has a, it's like one big open loft. And so I, I like lost a whole lot of wall space in that process. And so I've got a bunch of art that it's not in the category of like Danish oil paintings at all, but it's a, uh, you know, it's stuff that I am, you know, like attached to for either like the reason I bought it or the person I bought it from or whatever. And I'm, I'm, it's all like wrapped up in towels and blankets and sheets and kept in storage. And, and I'm like, one of these days I'm going to get more walls. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, that's really cool that you have so such a connection. <laughs> yeah, I have a, it's funny. I, um, I go on this trip every summer at the same time and there's a bunch of my friends. We all go. Um, it's actually a, um, fishing trip and, um, 
there's this little restaurant that we go to and we've been doing this for literally um 10 or 15 years and there's a guy that's um a waiter in the restaurant and the entire restaurant is uh, decorated in his oil paintings and so he paints a lot of really abstract very interesting um artwork because what he does is he goes home every night and he um smokes marijuana and paints and whatever comes into his head is what comes out onto the canvas and then they put this all in this restaurant and it's a real it's so funny because you're out in the middle of nowhere where this restaurant is but it's always real it's real fancy so everybody's wearing you know all the the waiters are wearing you know um suits and sometimes tuxes and it's just the funniest it's the funniest thing and then this crazy art on the walls and i started buying art from him literally you know 15 years ago and every time we go to that restaurant myself and most all of my friends have bought pieces from him and so it's funny because it's not something you know i don't know if it's really got a huge amount of um of pricing value but it means so much to me and i have the stuff everywhere i don't have any of it in my house because my wife would never let me um, hang it but i have it in various buildings offices <laughs> whatever i love it and um when one time i was talking to him about it and he said you know i get people coming in from all over the um all over the place and they buy my art and i happen to be in a building down in um in arkansas where walmart's headquarters are and i started seeing his art all through these buildings and um i talked to some of the people there and they said oh yeah that's ted ted's one of the most famous um artists in this area and all the um corp all the corporate offices like buy his stuff and decorate it uh decorate their offices with his artwork which blew my mind i had no idea so it's like it's interesting it's just an appreciation i think if you love art um i never dreamed that there might be value in and ted's art that's not why i was buying it i just loved it i love the story behind it i love the way the art made me feel um and i still buy it um it's it's really interesting but i've recently found out that he's well known um within that 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 area so it's pretty wild that's pretty cool and what i also think is interesting is uh do you ever bring a tuxedo when you go fishing or do you just kind of wear your clean jeans when you go into this restaurant no we get some funny looks when we go into the restaurant because no we do not dress up so um we've been going there so for so long and the, the restaurant they love us and ted loves us because we buy his art and um uh, yeah, so they let us in, but we go like literally off the boat, go up, go to the restaurant. They'll have a table waiting for us. And um, the all the other people in the restaurant are usually literally in suits, um, doctors, and we are in our fishing clothes. And um, they seem to, some of them give us some funny looks, but overall they, they put up with us. I guess it takes all kinds, doesn't it? Well, and if you're going in there and buying not only, you know, fine food, but fine art um, along the way, you know, like I, that's hard to that's hard to uh, complain about. Right. Um, so, Bode, I saw your hand up a couple times. Did you, you can jump in if you had something to add in. Yeah, Pam, I just uh, actually the conversation was going great with all the easy talks. But I just wanted to go back to 
uh, what's pinned on top, which is one of my favorites that Alpha has ever collected, which is the North Korean series from Rhapsody. At the same time, he's been sweeping Fellowship and Salgado and now this North Korean series with 30 pieces. So, you know, these are all one of those extraordinary works. You know, when I came to NFT, there's not really such work in NFT, but in within the eight months, it's gone uh, to this level. So does Alpha see this like the space is maturing and bringing in all these great talents in? Uh, do you see it that way? Or uh, I just want to know your opinion on this. Yeah, so there are some, um, you know, very well-known artists, um, photographers in the physical world that are entering the NFT space um, through these groups like Fellowship and Rhapsody. And um, I definitely have been um, supporting those groups and I have been collecting the art that they're bringing in. I, I believe, you know, I know that there's, I've, it's, it's wild because sometimes I take some heat um, for collecting even something like uh, Crudson or um, uh, Guy Bardeen and people will send me almost hate um, messages about doing that and how it's not good for Web3. But I really believe the exact opposite of that, that when these um, artists and that are so respected and so known and so collected in the physical world that have established values um, within that world are coming into web three. They're really helping validate it for everyone. And so I do believe that there's a huge opportunity to be able to pick up some of that work at this early stage. But I, I believe that them coming into this space is incredibly um, beneficial for the entire space. And I have seen the, these groups bring in new collectors. And what I think will happen is as they um, bring in um, these established um, artists that are, that are very well-known in the physical world, they're going to bring in collectors of those artists into Web3. Uh, then those collectors will start branching out and collecting other things. Once they see you know, the opportunity that exists in Web3, that you'll have just more collectors in Web3. And these collectors are generally people with you know, a lot of resources and the ability to um, collect anything that they want. And um, they're not dependent upon the price of ETH because they buy their ETH whenever they're going to make their, um, their, their purchase. And so I think it's really healthy and really beneficial to Web3, the entire ecosystem. I would say that that's a a, a very um, highly uh, I we agree with that as well. I mean, like the more people from what you might call like the outside world or the real world or whatever, the more we can onboard, you know, people who are already known in that space into the space. Um, that's going to be just better for for the whole whole space, you know, as as one. Um, I, I heard Stefan talking about that work that he shot in North Korea. I was just blown away. I think it's so brave and so 
that those images are just so stunning. Um, I really enjoyed the insights he was sharing on the Meta Jungle space um, this weekend. Um, that was really cool. Um, go ahead, Ev. Yeah, I, I did. I did have a question. So I know that uh, Alpha, you collected a lot from uh, Guy Bourdin, uh, but like I'm, I'm looking at uh, Salgado. He's about to celebrate his 79th birthday, and I'm wondering if you have. Um, a specific, let's say, like attitude towards living photographers and photographers whose art is now managed by their estate or, you know, depends on uh, who they pass it to. I'm, I'm curious, kind of like, what's your take on that uh, with, with regard to like living photographers in the States? Um, for me, I, I will collect either way. Um, it does not bother me at all to collect um, from the estate of a you know well-known artist that's been successful um in their career and to me i'll, I'll try to just kind of when you're when you're when you're collecting in web3 and there's you can collect from um a whole variety of different um artists at different in different parts and different places in their career path and at different values and so there's there's various risk within that and, and definite potential rewards from doing that too. Um, when you get to a certain level of collecting, you can't just collect um, for the good of the space. And, and, and a lot of people I always just say, oh, I just collect because I love it and I don't care if it ever has value in the future. But that, that's fine. But you get to a point to where that may not be really reasonable anymore. Um, you wake up and all of a sudden you realize, hey, I've, I've spent $2 million buying NFTs in the last um, uh, six months or a year. And um, at that point, you have to start thinking about future value. Or I think that a lot of people, most people start thinking about it when they get to a certain point in their collecting. And what happens is you can take some of the, the art that, has a very established value already um, that's already considered investment grade art in the physical traditional world and if you can buy that at a at a big discount to what it sells for in the traditional world it can help offset some of the risks that you might take collecting um, art from people that are more native web3 photographers or artists that's the way I look at it. And so if I can buy a Guy Bourdin at um, 5 ETH or 4 ETH or whatever that price is, and I know that that same artwork would cost me, you know, I'm buying a one of one. And if I was buying a, a one of nine or one of 18 in the physical world, that piece would have cost me $100,000 or $80,000. Um, it gives me a comfort level that then I can buy um, something from a emerging artist in Web3, and I can assume the risk of, of doing that without worrying about whether or not my, you know, I'm going to have any money left for my kids when I die. And so I think it's just a, a finding a balance. And for me, I can use the art from some of these estates and from some of these legends like um, Salgado or Crudson or Bourdain in order to be able to offset and help balance out my collection 
to where I don't have to worry so much about the value of any given piece um, in the future. And, and do you feel that if you have Burdeen or Salgado, that in your gallery, in the, in, the, in the metaverse space, I guess, do you feel that you are now a person that can influence how this work is seen if you put someone else, like an emerging native Web3 photographer, next to a Salgado or Burdeen? So... Um, Emma, uh, Nifty Metagirl, and myself have just um, curated a exhibit um, for Venice for November, and so definitely what we we really made a, a effort to do is when you're looking at a a wall of of art, we mixed emerging artists with some of the legends, and. I don't know if it's a, you know, I, I'm not going to say, and I don't even know if I want to have influence on how it's perceived, but I definitely wholeheartedly believe that if you see an emerging artist's work exhibited right alongside somebody that is, you know, either a living or no longer living legend in a space, you know, exhibited, for instance, in this case, in a physical gallery, I definitely think that there's a huge benefit to the emerging artists that are, are being displayed right alongside those, um, those legends. And so whether or not I'm influencing people's view of that, I don't know, but I definitely think it's, it's good for an artist to be able to be seen in that light. Um, at least I hope so, because that's how we, um, that's how we curated the entire, the entire um, exhibit. For sure. Uh, and I'm sure it's not something you can put on LinkedIn as like, I've been next to Salgado, <laughs> but at least it's something that can give you a sense that like, oh, this curator uh, or this person probably could have put any other work next to uh, Salgado. And I'm a, such a huge fan of his works. It's like, uh, and when I saw that I could buy one of those, I'm like, I have to, <laughs> it's my last eat that I have. So I, I have to uh, put it, uh, you know, towards that because I think I've been, a, I don't know, I've been a fan for the last 20 years or so, which is pretty long uh, in, in my in my life. But yeah, uh, kind of like putting that next to this, uh, would mean a lot uh, to me as to Salgado fan, and I'm sure to many others. Yeah, and so the same way in the virtual world and virtual galleries, you know, I I've been working on I think twenty or thirty galleries, um, and I keep like thinking I have them done, and then stopping and um, like reconsidering and going back and starting a recuration process with them. Um, but a lot of what the reasons behind that is because when I started building those galleries out, um, I didn't have the opportunity to uh, display some of these, um, you know, legendary um, physical world photographers in with the emerging artist. And so now I'm having to redo it and rethink about that process because to me, I think it, there's, it's just so cool to be able to put art that I love by these different people into the same space, especially when it's, there's some type of cohesion behind it. And um, it's, it's way more 
impactful, I think, than if I, you know, I have 35 pieces of Salgado and I may end up with double that by the time I'm done um, collecting that. So I could do a, you know, a virtual gallery that's all Salgado, but I think it seems way more impactful to mix that work in with other artists. And, um, and I think it just shows just, I think how much opportunity there is for collectors within web three and you start seeing pieces together and, and even like for our exhibit, um, and Venice, we're going to, I'm having a, a video made out of it that will show all the pieces, um, together on the wall. So you can see who else, like how we put things together. And I know there's going to be impact from that too, because I have room for, um, in that exhibit, I have room for 90, um, photographers to be exhibited and um i've collected from you know 500 600 something um and so there's going to be a bunch of people that um are going to be disappointed because they're not in that exhibit and um prepared for that but it's also it's a starting place because for for us if that's received well and we feel like it has a, a really positive impact for the space, then we'll continue doing that. And um, we'll be able to to mix different artists in and be able to use a lot of this, um, you know, work from these artists through Fellowship and Rhapsody and Sotheby's and mix that in with the overall collection to really get a way bigger impact, um, I think more meaningful for web three is what, um, my hope is. And so we'll see if it, it works or not. You know, I think it's, it's so cool that you were, um, that you're founding member of meta jungle and you, you do all these activities that really are helping, um, rise up, you know, elevate everyone um, kind of together, you know, providing these opportunities for people to learn um, how to go about presenting their art in the in the Web3 space, how to, you know, uh, make a successful NFT drop and all of those things through all of the um, the community activity activities that you do through Meta Jungle. And I just in, in hearing you talk, it just seems like you have such a a personal interest in in making this space um, like as good as it can be, and I just think that's amazing, and it's really um, so welcoming to see and to hear and to just watch uh, as it rolls out. You know, I um, I, I just uh, really have appreciated seeing that um, through you know the the time that I've been here. But um, do you have like if you were to say like do you have goals for um, either your role in the space or like how you'd like to see this space be like in, you know, three to five years, like what, what's the, like the, in the best scenario possible, what would that look like? So I think um, definitely for the space that I hope that we see um, standards established that will help really make sure that the, vast majority of fine art that's being created and offered and bought and sold um, within the, the entire NFT space is going to stand the test of time and that it's going to um, still be here um, a decade or two decades or way longer. Um, and it's one of the things that I've been concerned about from the very beginning 
Um, I definitely am looking forward to seeing when there's a lot more collectors um, that are onboarded into the space. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the institutions come in. And I think that in the, in the background, there is a tremendous amount of work being done right now to help facilitate that. And I do believe that those institutions are um, going to come in, um, in a, in a big way. And so I believe that in the next few years, we'll start seeing exhibits being done um, literally around the world um, in the major um, museums where everything in that exhibit is going to be an NFT. And I think that's really exciting and I'm looking forward to that. Um, But I think there's still, we still have a long way to go because there's still a lot of um, holes that exist in some of the contracts and some of what's being minted. There's a lot of things that are being left out. There are things that would make um, some of the uh, NFTs that are currently being minted unable to be able to be used um, as any type of collateral, which is really disappointing. Um, I hate that because I know that part of the the beauty of what Web3 offers is the ability to be able to do things that you can't do in the physical world. You know, in the physical world, it's very difficult to go in and, and you know, get money um, using your, your artwork as collateral. Um, and I think that that's very possible in this world, but you have to have still, you still have to have the, the value um, basics in place. You have to be able to look at the contract and be able to look at the actual token and know that everything's solid. It can't be changed, um, that it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and we still have a long way to go, I think, on that front. But I'm excited to see all those things happen. And um you know, one of the, the things that we've tried to do via Meta Jungle is help explain those things. Um, and we've been doing that for a year. And I think um, we've definitely seen, you know, in the entire space, we've seen a lot of positive movement in that regard. But there's still um, a long way to go. But we're, we're definitely the space is definitely moving in the right direction. And I'm, I'm super excited to see see what's going on. Well, that's really cool. It, it, it kind of it cut, you kind of answered my next question, which was, um, are there any like early lessons that you learned like early, early? I mean, no, we're early still, but like earlier in the space, were there any lessons that like kind of stood out to you that either um, were, were things that like you encountered in the space? You're like, whoa, I'm not going to do that again. Or that you heard of, you know, like out in the space where you're like, oh, that person just like totally stepped in a pothole or something <laughs> that didn't go well. Um, any Anything you can think back of besides, you know, the, um, you know, the idea of the solid contract and um, different things like, you know, the importance of storage and things like that. But any any other um, things that really stand out to you where you're like, whoa, that was a misstep on someone's part? I mean, yeah, I think I would definitely say I made lots and lots of missteps early on. And I'm, I'm sure I still make plenty of missteps. Um, I think that's part of the process when you come into Web3. You're, there's so much to learn. And sometimes the um, the way you're going to learn it is by making mistakes and you have to learn it the hard way. But one of the things I think that I realized probably two or three months too late, and if I had realized it earlier, um, I might have uh, I might have saved a few hundred thousand dollars um, by 
just understanding it. But I started really realizing how much greed was in the space and that there was a tremendous amount of things that were being motivated by greed. And so once I learned that and started trying to separate um, what I was doing, what I was buying, um, who I was dealing with from the motivation. And obviously money is important. And if you're on the selling side, if you're a creator, money is really important. But there's a difference between, you know, trying to to sell something to make money and just a really wholesale greed um, motivation. And so once I was able to identify that and start very, very consciously um, avoiding the greed side, um, I feel like my my entire collecting experience became way better. And so understanding, hey, it's great. We want people to make money. And that's a, one of the big benefits of the space is it's enabling that. But when I start, whenever I see something that starts hearkening back towards the greed that you might see in, um, you know, some of the early PFP drops, not the really early ones, but the ones that came after when, um, every drop people were just throwing money into it and it was rug pull after rug pull and it was you know teams that were promising the world and not delivering anything um and all of those things it was it was happening and just being justified just solely by greed and it was not just the greed of the teams doing it but a lot of the greed by the people that were participating and so when you when you are able to separate that out recognize that and then you go in and you look for things where you don't see agreed is the primary motivation i think it makes the space um way safer for you and way more enjoyable and so you still can make some mistakes but um you're not going to be caught up in in that wholesale you know kind of spirit that really takes the fun out of it that's for sure that's for sure um yeah i kind of i kind of remember all those like fast and furious days where it's just you don't even know where to to, to like jump on even as a vicarious you know bystander um to understand what was going on i remember hearing so many spaces where people would be like recounting the stories of what happened it's like wow that thing happened before i could even uh catch up to it but um yeah that's it sounds it sounds like when you can um you know really kind of understand your own motivation and um it, it and be connected to the art pieces and the reasons for collecting and the artists themselves um that just makes the whole experience that much better um, and speaking of collecting, I want to say congratulations for for picking up a piece from Sabod's la- latest um, series of images. Um, I, I I understand there's some uh, really great news. We saw it on Twitter, but Sabod, <laughs> um, do you want to jump in and and uh, tell about the special prize that you had as part of your series, uh, Cosmic Trinity? Oh, Pam, I think this. Uh, okay, I'll make it very quick. Yes, we did. Uh, I did have a drop, which is Cosmic Trinity, three images. And the fourth image was for Raffle, which was a deep space image. You know, I consider them priceless. I don't want to 
sell them i want to literally make it uh, something beyond uh, any ethereum so i didn't want to sell that so i put it on raffle so one of the three collectors who collects from that collection would get that image and i did the raffle and the cosmos said alpha so the image has been airdropped to alpha and yeah i think that's about it so thank you so much alpha for your trust as always and for picking up the piece no is is that a real time news about the raffle i did, i didn't see that earlier did you, yeah. did you announce that or it, it was just yeah. the first time we were hearing that there was this there was a randomized spinner uh, post that we saw i saw from Sabot earlier today and alpha's the winner congratulations alpha thank you <laughs> thank you Sabot. yeah i had no idea um i did not know that that was even going to be done when i collected the piece um from sabod so that was a it was like you know a huge um uh you know i was very excited whenever uh i saw that and i'm a i'm a big fan of deep space photography i love um i love the amount of effort that goes into it and i have a, a lot of appreciation for that um so that that piece is absolutely stunning and so to win that you know it's like for me, it's like winning the lottery. I feel really, really um, blessed by that. And thank you, Sabode. I really deeply appreciate it. Um, but I did not know that was even a possibility when I collected the piece. So that was very special. No, Alpha. I mean, it comes a full circle because it was all short during that peak COVID when the COVID was really a scary thing. And it was in 2020. And I had to travel like 150 kilometers every single night I would travel uh, because we have that six days, dark days when we can shoot these things. I used to travel. I used to, you know, the, you go into these wild places where your car gets screwed up. I have this very low car, so it gets all messed up. I used to question myself, you know, I'm sitting there from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why I'm doing all these things during COVID? You know, I'm screwing up my car. There is nothing to earn and my whole business has stopped because of COVID. What's wrong with me? And now, you know, it's a full circle. It came a full circle and I know that I was doing all those things so that I can see all these days uh, in the future. So it's been wonderful and I'm glad it uh, it's with you right now. So really appreciate it. There couldn't be a better person to hold it. So thank you so much. But Pam, I think we should move on from my drop. I There are so many wonderful people listening. So I don't want it to look like I hijacked I, I the space. That's a perfectly fine. Um, well, it, it gives me a chance to, uh, since since this uh, Cosmic Trinity was a series that, that was released on Sloika, um, I could point out that Alpha, I don't, you probably know this already, but you are the, the top collector on the Sloika platform so far. <laughs> Um, and I, by the latest count, it looks like there was o- over 85, at least 85 pieces that you collected from the Sloika platform. And um, I know we always are wanting to hear from from collectors like yourself um, about what you're looking for. You know, when when an artist is preparing their work um, to, to get it ready to sell, um, are there any things that you look for as a collector um, that really... Um, make it make it much you know like a much shorter decision for you to 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 react and say yes this is something i want to collect i know we've talked in in the past about like putting descriptions on the work and things like that but are there are there any kind of things that really check the boxes for you um when you're deciding on on what you are going to collect whether it's on sloika or someplace else just because i know um we have artists that are on all kinds of blockchains out here and their listeners and also all kinds of platforms just so just in general as a collector what do you like to see um when you're looking for a piece to collect so that varies a lot um depending upon 
literally the price range that I'm looking at that artwork at. So um, if the if it's a really affordable entry um, uh, piece, then um, I'm pretty lax sometimes on the requirements. I definitely want to see artist name. So um, if a piece doesn't have an artist name, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to collect it. Um, that's really important. Some of those things about a some type of description, um, having some properties, including the artist name, really, really important to me um, for the just the long term permanence of having that piece um, on the blockchain. Um, but then it's just about how it impacts me. Um, if it's a inexpensive piece, um, it's really completely about the art itself. I'll go in, look at the collection. I'll make sure that it's not too similar to other pieces that are in the collection. So I definitely want it to be um, unique to some extent. I prefer one of ones over additions, but you know sometimes I do um, collect additions too. Um, that's really what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the, the artwork itself and then literally how it fits into what the artist is doing. If I can see, you know, if it's an emerging artist, if I can kind of determine what that artist plan or path is based off of what they've done and what they're doing. Um, but I don't really feel like I hold too crazy of a standard for that as the art becomes more expensive then um i become way more um tuned in to those things and um have way less flex and when you get to um really higher dollar um things i'm looking really closely at the creator the amount of work they have out especially the amount of unsold work they have out um so I'm looking at things that are really going to play into the long-term value of it um, as fine art. And, you know, some people um, don't like that. And they, and I, and then when I say this, I'm inevitably going to get some messages about it that are, are negative because people don't like hearing that, but it's the truth. I mean, it's the way I look at it. It's the way I do it. Um, I take it very seriously um, how the artist is, is, conducting themselves um in that way um not that i'm not talking about their personality or anything there but just from a professional standpoint the more expensive the art becomes the more i kind of expect that the artist is going to be very conscious of things that are going to you know impact the long-term value of that artwork and, and those things might be, you know, not minting the same piece on another blockchain, calling it 101. I mean, just like a lot of the things we've heard, you know, discussed out in spaces before and like not doing an addition of something that was presented as a one of one, things like that, that are just kind of like the basics. But like you said earlier, the, your vision of like what could what could be an ideal way this space looks in the future is, you know, a few more um, sort of accepted community like guidelines or you know, ways of things, this is the way things are done, that sort of thing. So that's really cool. Well, thank you for, sh thank you for sharing that. Um, I did want to take a second to check in with you on your, on your time commitment. I know we've been talking for about an hour. <laughs> I didn't want to keep you, but I know um, Ev's probably got some uh, more questions and we might have questions from listeners in the audience. Even Sabod might have a question or two. If he's still awake, he's, it's very late in Dubai. 
or very early, whichever you put it. Are you doing okay on time, Alpha? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay, very good, very good. Um, yeah, so um, let's see. I um, I wanted to, let's see, I'm, I have a few more questions for you, but um, I think a lot of these are, um, you've, you've answered for me. It sounds like, um, you know, one question that a lot of artists always want to know is um, they want to ask the collectors, how do you find the art that you collect? And there's there's so many, you know, different ways that we've heard people find it, either on shill threads or in DMs or um, different ways like that. But is there is there a favorite way that you um, have have found the work that you collect? Um, or like what what would you say is the most common way for you to find and discover new work? <laughs> I've been for like the last um, few months, I've been super, super busy. Um, and so I've had less time to spend in the space really searching myself. And so I'd say that the one of the big ways that I am finding discovering um, art right now is via other collectors. And so I have collectors that will just let me know about um, things that are going on in the space um art that is being um getting ready to be dropped or that has dropped and that they are collecting or that they're thinking about collecting and that's extremely helpful and so it's literally right now a lot of it happens through um the just old school world of word of mouth um and those things are a little different than someone um shilling um, shilling is probably becoming less and less effective, I think, as a, a mechanism for selling in the space. And I don't think shilling, um, especially some of the ways that the kind of more hardcore um, street hawk type shilling that used to happen a lot in the space, I think that's kind of um, probably going to be a thing of the past eventually. Um, there's not... I don't think anyone really likes that so much. People that are having to do it or feel like they have to do it probably don't enjoy it too much. And I think a lot of, um, you know, the people that are uh, getting that probably don't. I, I get lots and lots of that um, still, but I don't really, I don't react to it very often as far as, you know, going in and, and buying something based off of it. Um, so my favorite way right now, the way that's probably the most effective is I have collectors in the space that um kind of tell me about things that are going on and um it results in me um, um you know finding things and being able to to collect it purchase it that's pretty cool and that's the first time i've heard that answer <laughs> Um, and I wonder, do you do you reciprocate? Do you um, let other collectors know kind of what you're looking at, um, you know, in 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 reciprocation? I guess. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I don't know that I'm as good as it. I don't. I don't know if I give it as good as I receive, but I definitely try to. And so, um, I definitely um, when I discover something really special, I definitely tell. Um, some other collectors about it and um you know i think sometimes there's a, a bit of trust in that for me you know a collector bringing me something uh, if it's a collector that i have confidence in and trust um it kind of negates some of a lot of times i'll understand that collector i'll understand what's important to them 
I'll understand, you know, a little bit about their motivation. And so they may not be as concerned or knowledgeable about, you know, the type of token or, or how, um, permanent that token is so that may be something i still need to look at but they may be really tuned into what the artist has done or the artist of their work and so because of that um i already have confidence from them on that side and it lessens the amount of time that i may have to take um before deciding to collect something and so it's just a it's a really for me it's a really beneficial system it sounds like it. it sounds like there's a, a a really good community, and like you said, there's um uh, it, if there's if there's an openness to to sharing, um you know, and an attitude of like let's all uh, you know build the space together, that's that's really cool to hear that that's going on amongst collectors as well, um and I wanted to invite just Evan Sabot if you guys have anything to add in, um I I have one more question I was going to ask, but um if you guys have questions too. Um, feel free to to jump in. I do, yeah. I I did find actually that very interesting that um, you often now kind of like majority of that discovery and collecting happen happens through the collectors groups. Um, I'm curious, kind of like when is there is like a inflection point in a way where the artist is discovered? I assume that there is kind of like new artists discovered every day. Uh, when the artist is discovered, do you guys have like a friendly competition or an unfriendly competition who grabs uh, pieces? And, and if that happens, kind of like maybe there's a story that you might share about that. I mean, no, I wouldn't say necessarily that, um, although it's funny because, you know, collectors, everyone does things in their own way. And, and most collectors have m multiple wallets. And so sometimes I will collect from a Anom wallet um, for various reasons. <laughs> Maybe it's something that I don't really want people to know about yet or um there might be some reason why I, I do a collection in an anom wallet and i know other collectors do that um on the salgado i found um i kept seeing some offers being made by a um anom wallet um and when i went in and looked at the wallet the entire wallet was uh all salgado so it was it was quite interesting and it's incredible like I realized immediately that whoever was doing that, they really knew what they were doing. Um, I suspicioned that it might be somebody at Sotheby's, um, et cetera, that was actually doing that. And then later I realized it was um, a collector that, um, you know, I talked to all the time, a really good collector. Um, I have tremendous respect and they're a big collector in the space and that they were doing that wallet. I'm not sure yet why, probably just because they were, um, you know, it's a huge collection and they're, they don't want everyone, you know, going in and trying to bid over them because they're really good at what they do. Um, but it was funny because I realized it because that collector shared a piece that they had collected and um, I recognized it from that wallet just because I'd looked through that wallet and they, they shared the piece without any kind of links. It was just the image. And I was like, ah, so that's their wallet. Um, and it's funny because I'm, I'm sure at some point that that work will get moved into, you know, their vaults, et cetera. But um, they're putting together a fantastic collection and um, they're doing it very quietly um, within the space. So I'm sure whenever they're ready, they'll, they'll tell people that they've done it. But it's, it's amazing. 
Wow, that's uh, that's the same. Uh, is well, I guess similar to what I'm doing, like on EtherScan, trying to uh, figure things out where they where people transfer money or NFTs. Uh, I stopped looking that closely in the last month or so, month ish, I guess. Uh, but it's pretty incredible that you can see uh, and you know an art piece in someone's Twitter feed and be like, "Yep, <laughs> I know whose Anon wallet is that." Uh, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I put together, um, I told this in another space, I told it in, I think, this fellowship space the other day, but the world today, um, that collection, which is 10,000, it's a 10,000 piece photography collection with 138 artists, I think. But um, I I did a Anom wallet specifically to go in and buy all the pieces that had 69 in the title. And so I, I bought every piece available from that collection that had either the number 69 or the, you know, the spelling 69 in the title and um, got almost 69 pieces. It was kind of amazing because I had this crazy idea that I would do a um, 69 gallery. And um, I think it'll be fun because people, you know, for the culture, people will um, want to check that gallery out. They'll go and look at that gallery. And um, I was just doing it for, you know, fun, but I didn't want to do it with my um, Alpha Trilogy um, account because for one thing, it takes a little bit of time to do it. Um, this was, I did it before they had the feature within OpenSea where you could actually just add a whole bunch of things to your wallet and then buy them at one time. And so doing it one at a time, if someone catches you doing that and they see it, inevitably there'll be a few people that'll jump in and try to collect some of those pieces ahead of you once they figure it out. And so I used the Anom wallet to do it um, and was able to get all the pieces that had 69, except for two or three that had already been collected. So it's kind of fun. And eventually I'll put together a, um, a um, virtual gallery that's, you know, the 69 gallery. And so just for I fun. See. <laughs> And that number 69, that holds some personal uh, significance for, for you? I, I won't say it was personal Yeah, I'll just I, say I, it, it's for the culture. So um, it's funny because the reason really behind it is that I, I definitely think there's a lot of, um, and, and I, think, I think it's well known, I hope, within the space, but there are, a large number of DGen collectors that came into this space early on. Um, they cut their teeth in the PFP world. They have, you know, collected a lot in the PFP world. Um, a lot of the collections in the PFP world have lost a lot of value. And I think there's a tremendous amount of them that are starting to look into the fine art world. And um, they have definitely an interest in it. And so, um, in the PFP world and among those collectors, they a lot of them will collect numbers. So within a series of PFPs, there's certain numbers that just are always going to have collector interest. And so first and foremost, you got two you know, 420 and 69. It's almost impossible to build a photography or a fine art collection using the number um 420 because there's just not that many um, collections that have that many pieces but 69 is possible because there are some pieces or there's there's collections that'll have you know a total of 100 pieces or more than 69 pieces that actually have the 
number 69 in the title. And so that was the idea behind doing it because when I, when I create a 69 gallery, photography gallery, um, there'll be interest. I think I can, I can draw some of those um, DGEN early collectors in the space into it to look at it and and the the idea is hopefully to let them see hey there's value in this um there's way less potentially not financial advice but maybe way less risk than in some of the um pfp stuff that you might be doing um you can still do the pfp stuff but hey come over and look at this and a 69 gallery would be a way to you know, just help them see that. And a lot of them would put a an extra value on a PFP project that they were in that had 69 um, in the title or was the 69 token. For a moment, I thought Ev didn't know what 69 is, but I was like, he's so innocent. Well, I think many, many DJs, they would talk about this and they may not know that. But yeah, I was trying to keep my uh, face straight when I was asking that question, that's for sure. <laughs> We could hear the smile in your voice. <laughs> um, well, um, we have a few speakers who are joining us who may have some questions for you, Alpha. Um, let's go first to uh, Waleed. Hey, welcome to the stage, Waleed. Hey, guys. I think Kafi was, was ahead of me. I think, you know, if you were Kafil. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't see who came up first. Uh, Kafil, are you ready to talk? Uh, yeah. Thank you, Waleed. Okay. That's so, so sweet. And thank you, Pam, Ev, Subod, and Alpha. Uh, great conversation. I was just thinking of changing my reserve to 0.69, but whatever. Anyway, my <laughs> a different question in my mind. Yeah, my question was actually about uh, this, uh, you know, NFTs. It's it's a token, basically, not, not the whole art in itself. We just attach an artwork to it. And that actually gives us more flexibility of whatever we want to do with that token. You know, it can be uh, anything, you know, and the pricing structure can be anything and we can play around with it with more of our ideas that we bring in. But somewhere, you know, uh, even in my journey and somewhere I see the whole this art world, uh, I see this, uh, you know, the basic, the most traditional thing that used to happen that was the signed physical pieces. And people collected it all over since centuries, and it's somewhere it still holds a lot of significance and a value. Uh, and so I was I've actually DM'd a lot of collectors about this. Quite few of them responded to me because I wanted to get this idea uh, of using NFTs merely as a certificate of authentication of an actual printed piece or a canvas painting, photograph, whatever, and having it personally signed and shipping it to the buyer because i see three benefits in it that is one it's it gives a more personal touch you know in web 3 you know in the web 2 it was more like a retailer and a customer kind of a relation but in web 3 it gives it an actual uh, you know because we are interacting with each other so it brings that artist collector thing second was that you know the scarcity element that you know there'd be many copies of the same jpeg anybody can download it and print it at high res but there'll only always be only one signed print and lastly was it gives some sort of uh, IRL utility as well utility as well that you can hang it in your wall in your home office space anywhere but there are definitely some challenges which actually you mentioned that's how i came to the question was you know when you were asked to do that kyc and you were not immediately comfortable sharing your name 
or your contact info or anything and if suppose you know i'm doing these shipping prints i need a lot i need i need the contact number i need the address i need so i'm not sure if the collectors are you know who are anonymously collecting would be comfortable in sharing this information and that may actually stop them from you know being interested in physical pieces uh, i just i just wanted to know the whole perspective the challenges that may come around and by perspective i don't mean whether it will sell or not by perspective i mean does it provides extra benefit or value to the collectors that's what i want to know from a collective perspective so yeah my my viewpoint on um what the nft really is and and represents maybe slightly different i i do agree it's almost like a certificate of authenticity but i look at it more like a um like a title like the title you would have for your car or um you know, for the deed that you would have to your house. Um, it represents that ownership, whether that ownership is of a license or something else, that's how I see an NFT. And what I see the value that makes NFTs special um, for art is that now you can sell, you can trade, you can buy that instantly from anywhere in the world and it can change hands without having to go through a series of middle people and um, take the amount of time that it would normally take to sell a piece of fine art in the physical world. So you shortcut all of that um, and you're able to to actually do a transaction um, immediately. And with that comes the ability to be able to use that as um, collateral for something, just like in the physical world, you can use your car title or your deed for your home as collateral to get a loan um, or something else. And so that's where I see the power that NFTs bring into um, the to, to the fine art world. Um, with that said, the physical attachment and there's this there's almost a need I, I see with a lot of artists to combine some physical element to that. Um, I think that's fine. It's not really my interest in the NFT NFTs at all. Um, I, I obviously have a appreciation and love for physical art, but I think that there's no need to combine it. Um, there's definitely not a need for me because that's not where I see the value. Um, I think it creates complications because then if I were to go and sell the NFT, but it has something physically attached to it, um, what do I do with that physical? So now I need to find that seller and send the physical element on with it. And that just um, complicates the entire process for me and takes away some of the main reasons why I love um, the NFT space. So I just don't see that. I don't see that that's the future. And I would not, if I was an artist in the space, I would not concentrate my time, energy and effort on the physical side of it. I would really try to embrace what the power um, the NFTs give you, um, the power that Web3 gives you, um, the fact that you can create a royalty um, for your 
you know, your estate from now on um, via what you're doing and creating really understand that value, that power. And I would concentrate my efforts um, around that and not try to pull the physical world into this. Wow. I just want to say that this is actually very, very interesting insight uh, to uh, think about decoupling physical with NFT and then having extra hustles if you ever want to part ways with that. Uh, I think it's something that only serious collectors would, would think and, and not necessarily people who are trading PFPs. Uh, so that's uh, insightful. I don't think we also uh, haven't heard that before. So I think it's really cool. Yeah, so there's a um, there's probably a lot of people in the room that know about this or have heard about it, but it's pretty interesting. So I'll bring it up real fast because it's kind of it gives some perspective, I think, on what's going to be possible with um, NFTs. Um, I recently bought a production slot from DeLorean um, for one of their new cars, and. I believe that there's 9,000 of them that are going to be produced between 2024 and 2026. That's a really low number, 3,000 per year. Um, in the physical traditional world, a sports car that has, you know, that type of, you know, background and this kind of people are excited about when they announce their production slots, it's really, really hard to get one. And if you do get one, it's probably not secure. Um, you may or may not end up with it. So what DeLorean did is they are selling the production slots and the slots are represented by an NFT. And so you buy the NFT, you're guaranteed that production spot. What's really fascinating is in that world of those kind of cars, you know, the price of the car can go up um, $50,000 or $100,000 over what the sticker price is. And in the physical world, that money goes to a dealer. Um, and so you don't get that. Um, and so what DeLorean did is they sell this production slot. The slot's represented by an NFT. Um, you can trade, you can buy, sell, and trade that production slot. Um, it's a guaranteed slot in production. When it becomes time to actually produce your car six months beforehand, they will give you the opportunity to go in and customize your car. Um, but once you do that, you pay a $5,000 uh, deposit on the car. They're going to build that car at that point. And your NFT becomes, it's changed over to that exact car. Um, so the image on that M NFT um, is changed over to that car. I believe they have um, the idea, idea of being able to make that car usable in Metaverse. Um, which is kind of interesting because it'll be that exact car that you have, but you still can trade that. You can buy it. I mean, you can buy them, you can sell them. Um, so you can sell that position. And so the only person that's really benefiting from that excess demand that may happen is the person that goes in and commits to, to buying one, um, which is a fascinating uh, scenario. And then at the end, if you get the car, you take delivery of the car, they credit you the full $7,500 that you've paid during that process against the car. Um, but you may have bought one of those for $20,000 or $40,000 on the secondary market because the, the price of the cars have went up that much since they've started being manufactured. Um, it's just a 
fascinating process. And so what the NFT represents in this this case is the production slot. It's like, and it becomes basically almost like a title. And so it's the precursor. Once you have that NFT, it's the precursor of when you're going out and buying a car, instead of getting a title, you're getting the title in an NFT form. And so that's where the future is heading. And so what DeLorean does is once your car trades hands, you have to trade that the NFT has to go with it. And they're building mechanisms to force that to happen. So, um, and if your car gets totaled and it gets taken out of um, use, your NFT gets totaled too. It becomes, um, it gets taken out of use. And so it's a mechanism that literally um, really tracks ownership of a physical asset. Um, I think it's intriguing because it opens up all these possibilities. And, and, and I think light bulbs start going off for people throughout the physical world of how they're going to be able to come in and use NFTs to change the way business is conducted um, on a global scale and across all industries. And it's amazing because the people right here in this room, the early adopters in Web3, we're doing this with art. We're setting the path with fine art. <laughs> it's amazing. And some of the things that we see happening and being adapted to um, through the space, we're going to see, you know, kind of take hold over in fine art. But we've led the way. We've set the path with art. And so it's literally this revolution that's happening that we're going to change the way business is conducted globally and we're starting it with art. And so that's why art and fi fine art is always going to have a huge space in Web3. It's going to always have a place because Web3 is being built with it. It's pretty exciting. And so you can probably hear the excitement and passion in my voice when I talk about it because that's what's happening. And sometimes we get so you know focused on what we're doing and in the, the box in which we all live, we miss that. But that's what's happening. We're going to see global, huge brands coming in and changing the way business is done based off of a system that the artist and the people that have came in early and collected that art have created. And that's exciting. Isn't it always that art that leads the way? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm super excited about this future. Um, that's a really good question, Kafiel. Thank you for, for bringing it up. Did you have any follow-on comments? Uh, no, no. That gives me a good perspective. So that, that helps. You know, all the perspectives help. And thank you, Alpha, for your inputs on this. That's really excellent. Excellent. And um, congratulations on your production slot, Alpha. Um, we, I, I'm curious as to, uh, to know if you plan to keep it, keep it or uh, sell it and trade it. And uh, you'll have to keep us updated <laughs> unless you know right now what your plans are. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. So I don't have to decide. Um, literally, I won't have to decide till it's time to put $5,000 more down on the, um, and build out the car. And so, um, yeah, it's it, that's part of the the magic of the whole system, and that's why I think it makes it really appealing. And I can see how it's going to potentially start changing things within the entire automobile industry, which is just it's crazy to think about. It's a dinosaur industry where everything's been done, you know, 
it, it was at one point the most progressive industry in the world, but it's kind of stalled out. And I think it's getting ready to have a rebirth and um, it's going to have a rebirth because of Web3, which is pretty exciting. It's quite interesting that the um, full self driving from Tesla, that could be uh, an NFT as well. That like if you buy early, then uh, you potentially have uh, an appreciating asset on your hands. Uh, but I also want to note that DeLorean is an iconic car. Uh, and I remember that in the movie, the uh, the proper speed to to move back in time was 88 miles per hour. And I think uh, it's a missed opportunity to uh, to make it 69 miles per hour. And I think that would have been an even more iconic car. It's pretty funny because um, DeLorean and their specs, they have the speed, like the time it takes to go from zero to 88. So they're used to that 88 in their, in their marketing. Well, 88 is a magic number for some people too, but yeah, I think they, <laughs> they probably somewhere in the PG ratings, they were deciding what the speed of the car should be. Um, let's keep passing the mic around to uh, Waleed. We'll go back to you. Thank you so much for uh, for um, waiting. Thanks. No worries. No worries. Thanks for thanks for having me. A great uh, conversation. Just uh, before I ask a question, I just a quick comment on the car uh, stuff. Um, so in, in Dubai, the manufacturer, not the manufacturer, the dealer, the Mercedes dealer, so not actual Mercedes, but the dealer in Dubai, uh, fractionalized one of their supercars as NFTs, uh, where I think they put out 12, 12 or 13 or something NFTs, where the owners, whoever owns the NFT has part ownership of the supercar and they can book it, you know, whenever they want to go for a drive or take it on the track or, you know, or whatever it is. So, you know, it is it is it is happening even on a on a uh, not on the brand side, but on the dealer side. Uh, and I just found that really really interesting. Uh, so, what you might know that as well. It's M Content and the Art Style guys that, that put that together. Uh, but also, you know, well, yeah. just if we could also touch on the you know the place that we booked this weekend for the event. Even they were ready to accept Ethereum as the payment for their uh, space. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. So we, we had a we had an event. Uh, uh, we helped uh, uh, Nick Tech Bubble uh, put together an event to talk about Nancy Dreams Down and just help onboard people to to Web three. And we we chose a venue uh that accepted ethereum as payment which was which is great so like like it's it's happening you know it's it, it's actually dubai is one of those cities where it's very progressive and, and and they're really pushing and onboarding people and trying to use that that ecosystem um so on on on, a, on a, another note uh, alpha had a, a question for you man um, you know, being in the traditional art space um, and moving into the Web3 NFT world, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I, I try to onboard as many people as I can and talk to artists. And, you know, the, the, the idea that we were sold maybe six or seven months ago was that, you know, NFTs, when, you know, when your image or your piece of art is minted, uh, you know, nobody can change that. Nobody can change the data. Nobody can change the image. When somebody's collected it, nobody can change it. You know, when you collaborate with an artist, you put your, you know, your royalty split in that contract and that's it, you know, and, 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 and that's the, the idea that we were sold. But then in comes Manifold and, uh, you know, after the piece is collected, you're allowed to to change the artwork. You're allowed to change the, the, the royalty split between you and your collaborator. Uh, so how do you sort of how do you reconcile with that? 
how do you overcome that boundary when onboarding people? Like, what's what's the logic there? Well, for me, there is no logic in it. Um, it makes absolutely no sense. And as a collector, I hate it. Um, on some of the really high-end pieces that I have collected, where I spent a lot of money on those pieces, I've talked to, um, because they were minted on Manifold, and I've talked to you know the people behind it who have assured me that they have um, insurance, et cetera, to cover um, like the risk exposure that would be there if um, those pieces got changed at some point in the future. But do I think it makes sense? Absolutely not. And do I think um, as a collector that I like that, that, I like the idea of something that I've collected being able to be changed to anything um, in the future? No, I don't like it. Do I like the idea that um, not only do I have to accept the risk of my own wallets being hacked, but I have to accept the risk of the wallets that are connected to that contract being um uh, hacked? No, I don't appreciate it. I don't like it. I am very hopeful that that's going to be changed. Um, I am. I, I believe that there is the ability to do plugins to close that hole, and um, I hope that Manifold is working on those plugins and that they're going to make them available. Because for me. Um, if that becomes a permanent thing, then I will stop collecting NFTs because in no world that I'm aware of, will a collector buy something? You don't buy a collector car when the you can walk into your garage and it's going to be a totally different car the next day and you have no control over that. And so um, it completely undermines the entire value um, system for art. And it also makes it impossible. One of the things I have talked about for a long time is the importance of being able to use these assets as collateral and um, to be able to bring in basically institutional money into the space to backstop um, some of these collections, to be able to create a real value system for them, and to be able to always have um, liquidity available. And you can't do any of that if the asset itself can change um, either with the whim of the artist or the whim of someone that hacked into that artist wallet and got control of the contract. That almost That's sounds like, answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. I was going to um, see if Ev had anything to chime in on that about, <laughs> since it's a little bit of the nerd talk topic. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this, this is actually something like of a head scratcher. Like every time we used to do those uh, Friday nerd talks where it's like, hey, it's your NFT, but well, first of all, everybody can steal it from you. And so many wallets are getting compromised. Uh, even one that got compromised a couple of days ago from a friend of ours, I saw a thread. And second, that you can change metadata after the fact, which is kind of like, it's yeah, I would be upset if I have a artwork in my home, which I do. And then one, one you know, morning I wake up and it's a different artwork and it's like, hey, 
<laughs> I made it better. Um, and in traditional art, there's been a lot of those cases where art, you know, needs to be preserved in a particular way. I think we've seen what happens if you can just throw like soup at traditional art paintings uh, and kind of like what impact it makes as to how people react and how people, you know, condone or approve those those kind of messages. And NFTs seem to be like in the same realm. Obviously, they don't have the same history as traditional art just yet. But in essence, like we are trying to build a collectively technology that can withstand time as it relates to digital. And, you know, for me, kind of like from personal experience, I do have hard drives that are gone old enough, like four or five years, and they don't work anymore. And I have some CD-ROMs that I cannot read anymore because they just been sitting for so long that they are either just crashed by themselves, I don't know how that happens, or they just kind of like start degrading so that you cannot read the data. And so we got accustomed, at least I personally got accustomed to losing my data because if, if I don't do backups regularly, if I don't do backups to my backups and constantly update the systems, uh, you know, like with the filing systems and stuff like that every few years, that's basically a lost thing. And it comes with digital, which is kind of like really weird compared to, again, traditional art where oil paintings can survive hundreds of and hundreds of years. And so when NFTs emerged as a technology, that was the time where it's like, okay, now we actually have some permanence of the data uh, and some technologies like IP PFS uh, that allow you to potentially have permanence of data or RV, you know, as another example. But then you start realizing that, like, well, it actually will take a lot of work to just sustain this. And like we've seen that Ethereum is one of the oldest smart contract, actually the oldest smart contract blockchain. Uh, still exists, what is it, seven years uh, from the starting point. And that is very early. Like, this is kind of like where we are. So, like, we need to see what happens in another seven years to see whether it will stay or not and what it will take to preserve this data. So that's like, it's already hard. And I've, I've talked on nerd spaces that blockchains can go offline. I mean, you know, there's Solana as a famous example. And blockchains can actually uh, not only go offline, but just kind of like stop at some point if nobody is supporting, nobody is writing transactions on them. And yes, you can still access, you can become a node and, you know, get all this access. But in essence, you it just loses its value if nobody's using that. It's the same as like nobody's dialing up to uh, those BBCs. Uh, I don't know if anybody remember that from like late 80s, early 90s, where you would dial into this um, uh, or like IRC chats, for example. So nobody's doing that. They actually had shut it down just a few years ago. Uh, so they took a long time to shut them down, but they did eventually. And the same as to the permanence of data, that's something we touched upon multiple times because IPFS requires uh, paying a fee. And if you're doing something for free, you should ask like, well, who is paying for that? So if you're not paying for that, then maybe you are the product the same way as, as Facebook is. Um, and in that sense, there is just two competing technologies. One is Arviv and well, the other one is IPFS. And I would say that none of them have proven themselves 
in a very long term and that would be another point of kind of like potential failure because we don't we don't store uh, collectively again images on a blockchain itself we store them on uh just kind of like a hash and a link that links to one of those two technologies so that's going to be another interesting point uh how that survives and you know what you uh mentioned is the um, ability to change the data that Kind of like personally uh, and professionally, we do not agree that it's a good idea for collectors. And that's why like we never done it. Uh, well, it's been more than a year since our first contract on Sloika. And that's still the non-upgradable, non-changeable contract specifically for that purpose. Uh, you know, you need to have a new contract if you want to make changes uh, like if you want to basically redo it and do it right because we believe that it's actually a positive thing for collectors and it's a positive thing for creators that allows them to be more mindful about the process that they go through and about the impact that they want to make and kind of like what's their journey in the web3 space um, and i always said like hey experiments are fine you know do whatever use all the uh, blockchains and i know that you're one of the big experimenters in space and i'm glad that we are able to meet in real life uh and it's kind of like it, it, it's there's the experiments but there's also kind of like a giant i would say like a journey that I, I would like to have artists on that would realize that every step they make should move them somewhere towards their are kind of like, you know, overarching goal. And I hope that, you know, having contracts that are uh, more permanent in nature will act as this like catalyst to make sure that they're doing the right thing. And like the, the process that we use to onboard them uh, will act as the, you know, kind of like a bit of a resting place where they can think a little bit about their journey and actually uh, start to tie this all together as a story. So kind of like, you know, people who've been with like people who minted uh, with like they know this process and they know that you know it takes time to get stuff on chain. And we specifically kind of like want to make sure that it's slower than normal, <laughs> not in the way that like we wanted to mint you uh, to mint your stuff immediately, but we want you to be more mindful about the process, um, whether it's a bull market or a bear market. I think it doesn't really matter. You know, I, I want to play just a quick devil's advocate and say, Walid, have you seen any instances out there where like this changeable, you know, like that this has been a positive, like um, where either an artist or some other um, creator of an NFT has changed data afterwards and it was it turned out to be like super positive, super really cool creative. I'm just curious. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen like a, a, a bad example, but like I'm, I'm aware of like what could happen. So, for example, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a double edged sword, right? So, for example, Alpha just said, hey, uh, you know, you should probably decouple your your uh, physicals from your NFTs, you know, and I've got I've got a bunch of uh, um, I've got a collection that's tied to a physical. So now in my mind, I'm like, all right. You know, I could probably just uh, change the description in the metadata and say, "Hey, this is this doesn't come with a physical anymore," and drop the price a little bit. So that that's that's a good thing for me. You know, that that's a that's a good tool for me to have. Uh, but then there's there's this other uh, uh, argument of uh, royalties uh, these days. You know, some some of the, the the bigger PFP projects are announcing that you know they're not going to take royalties anymore. 
and uh, you know those those decisions sometimes trickle down and, and, and influence fine art. So you know when people decide to to sell your your art on a platform that doesn't honor your royalties, and you know you as an artist have a manifold contract and you find out, you know there, there's there's a case for you to be like, oh, I didn't get my royalties. Let me change that image and you know put something on the image that says, hey, dude, you messed up. You didn't pay me my royalties. You know, pay me this much and I'll put the image back. You know what I mean? Like there's the case for that. So it's 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 a double-edged sword, and I, I don't know what to think about it. But my my main thing was actually just you know when I'm onboarding somebody, when I'm trying to convince them that NFTs are the way to go, I've lost that argument of like you know it, it's it's immutable, you can't change it, you know it's permanent. Like I've lost that argument, and I don't know where to go with that argument. Well, I, I would add that any project that does reveal you know when it's on reveal stage and reveal stage they kind of rely on this uh to change the uh, metadata that's to your pam's point so it's almost inevitable that that's what they have to do um but for artists that have the art and it's the same before and after kind of like before reveal and after reveal it's already revealed then it kind of like does not uh, makes sense. But again, a lot of projects actually rely on that and like DeLorean changing PFP from stage to stage, that kind of makes sense. Uh, and, you know, there's there will be a lot of utility NFTs that actually find that this is very essential. Um, but Walid, what you're what you're mentioning is is another big topic of royalties. And oh my God, there's just kind of like too much to unpack. There's been kind of like this back and forth where people uh, shared his opinion on that and Magic Eden, one of the marketplaces announced that royalties are now optional and XTY2 did the same a couple of months back uh, and they're like they're basically fighting for liquidity and artists are not uh, at the center of this fight it's more of the PFP projects that are looking to and the marketplace are just looking to grab this liquidity uh, and center at, at their marketplaces and I did see the project starting, as you mentioned, um, moving to zero uh, percent royalties because of that. They just kind of like want to preempt this. But I think we will be kind of like victim of this on the artist side where we are not in this fight. We we are not specifically a, a target for, for this. But at the end, this just probably will be affecting uh, artists nonetheless. But again, I'm sorry, I'm taking up some time. But again, I have like, for example, there is, there is a, uh, another argument. So something that's happened to me, my wallet got compromised. My my PFP, the one I'm wearing just now, got stolen, uh, and, and another one. And I found the person that bought it off the the guy that stole it. And just to just so it it's you know. It, just so I don't pay extra on the royalties, we talked to each other and decided to to that I would buy it from the guy again on X2Y2, you know, but it was stolen from me. So it's, you know, these things are like, these things are like a double-edged sword. It's just like, and I, 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 my problem is just like, where do I reconcile that logic when I'm coming to onboard people? That's, that's all my question was really. Can I ask you, did you buy it from a thief? Is that, is that what happened? No, somebody, so, oh. so the thief sold it and I found the guy that bought it and I bought it from him at the price he bought it from the thief. 
because that reminds me of like an old tactic. Actually, my uh, co-founder and colleague uh, did that. He bought stuff from a thief that stole from him just a few days earlier. Um, and I'm like, wow, what a great business, but very annoying as well. So uh, I do understand this. And I think kind of like what what you're saying is probably impossible to fix as it is today. But, you know, something that we've been uh, discussing and advocating for is actually uh, two things. One is semi-custodial wallets, if that makes sense, where basically your key is shared between the uh, platform that you trust. I don't know. Let's say Coinbase for for sake of argument, and yourself. That you know you basically need uh, their permission to sign for any specific transactions over specific size. So that potentially can protect. Uh, all the you know all the web3 participants in the future where you can still have your keys so coinbase cannot do it without you and you cannot do it with without coinbase maybe it needs some different structure maybe it's like some other entity or maybe a non-profit organization kind of like like electronic frontier for example um and on the other side the wallets will have to become more robust to protect against uh, all types of attacks so like that work i've seen been happening on MetaMask and other wallets to make sure that transactions are easier to read. That work is happening on the protocol level where Ethereum is uh, has ability to have the tool called uh, sign-in with Ethereum to make it a little bit easier. But the overarching thing, and again, this is kind of like more of a personal opinion, where uh, your PFPs and your art should be living in a separate space. It kind of like doesn't make sense if, if you're compromised uh, with a wrong click or wrong sign in with your wallet, and then your assets are stolen, your identity is stolen, your domain name is stolen, and your uh, money, like liquid money, is stolen. So that kind of like makes no sense. Like if that would happen in the real world, that would be uh, like that would be chaos. And I'm sure it's happening in some countries, but like that is chaos. And so having some of those protections in place where it's a separation of your art. Of of your liquid assets and your identity, uh, and I think the you know wallets of the future will basically try to do that. Where like, hey, whatever you do, do not uh, like I do not give permission to move my uh, ENS, for example, or like whatever you do, those NFTs are marked as kind of like immovable, and like basically you 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 might be able to put some specific locks for that. Where like if you want to move it, um, like in a time. Um, delayed safe like you have to wait 48 hours or 72 hours uh, before you can move those so i think those protections in place will help a lot whether you're a collector or creator and in cases like this you know might protect your pfps in the future as well hey can i if i could just throw something in there because i'm just in this conversation because i want to um i, I want to make sure that my collector view is understood on the subject um and I, I understand the reasons why there may be completely open contracts and that there may be a great motivation um, for why that was done, you know, in order to protect artists or protect rights or be able to, you know, modify the files to be able to be more permanent or to be able to, um, you know, higher definition or et cetera, to be able to adjust with technology. I understand all those things, but it's not a, um, a workable system to sell something 
that can later be changed. Um, it's not going to work in the long term, um, and you're not going to be able to get any kind of institutional investment involved. And a lot of collectors in the physical world are not going to be able to adjust to that idea. It's not going. It's going to fail. It's bad for the ecosystem. And you can imagine it like this. I would foresee in the not so distant future that you can take out an insurance policy against your nft portfolio so you'll be able to insure against being hacked for instance and losing them um, in the physical world being able to insure your collections is a big deal and it's a it's a big industry and a lot of collectors that's how they're feel safe spending millions of dollars collecting something physical because they know they can buy an insurance policy that's going to cover it imagine going and telling your insurance agent hey you know the delorean i bought last week and i got insurance for i just walked out in the garage and it's a volkswagen it's not going to work it doesn't work. You can't do that. So it doesn't make any sense to try to solve one problem by creating a much bigger one that creates limitations on where the space can go. So one thing that could be done, and I think is a brilliant thing, is if the real reason really is to be able to make the art be able to be upgraded um, if needed, to be able to stay in tune with what the current technology is. Um, you just make it to where the creator and the collector sign off. So both of them, both signature, both wallet signatures are required to make a change. And if you do that, then you don't have any problems because the collector is going to know what's going to be done and they can either agree to it or not. Um, and it, it actually works and it still then has an asset value from an institutional perspective. I think that sounds like a very creative, very creative solution. And that, that makes all the sense in the world. I certainly wouldn't want a DeLorean turning into a Volkswagen in the garage while I wasn't watching. <laughs> really great conversation. Um, I want to keep moving the mic around. Um, Wally, did you have anything else you wanted to add or ask before we move no, on? No, that's all. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And thanks for, cool. that, for that info. Great. It's a really good topic. And thank you for keeping us all like up to date on uh, options that are out there. <laughs> Um, let's keep moving on. I know, uh, Kirit, you are up next. Um, are you able to talk right now? Yes, yes. Thank God. Uh, this is the first time I'm able to talk. So first thing, let me say hi to you, Pam, F, hello to Alpha, hi, Subodvai, Kofilvai, hello. Uh, I have a, one perspective, like uh, I've been dealing with these past three weeks. Like Alpha was talking about uh, a person he was selling artwork in real life, and uh, I would, I would, I would. Uh, sorry. So I, I wanted to. Uh, I'm wondering, as collectors' perspective, like, yeah, friends. The reason I'm asking because my friends are pushing me to sell. Thank you. Sells a prints in real life. Uh, I do sell prints like to the friends and stuff, but. If I start selling a print, and and uh, it's like for, it's, the print's not going to be same price as uh, 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 the. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm turning blank right here. But uh, if I sell a print of let's say fifty dollars, and I'm selling up my NFT as convert 
to eat is probably like 400 bucks. So like, you know, RT, uh, the collector is going to come at me like, oh, I'd rather to collect your print instead of uh, your NFT. What was your perspective? Like, I would love to hear that perspective from you, Alpha, if it's possible. So um, for me, the physical and the um, digital world are separate. So I don't look as... Um, so if you take and you're selling a print of a photograph in the physical world, um, that does not negatively impact me buying that as a one of one in the digital world. My expectation would be that the one of one that I collected from you is the only image um, of that photo that's going to be created um, on any blockchain in a digital format. And so I'm not expecting that I now own the copyright and you don't, you still own the copyright. And so my expectation would be that um, you would, if you have demand for it, that you would sell physical prints of it um, if that's available to you and does not have any impact on me whatsoever. It could be a positive for me. Um, because if you are selling the physical and you have high demand for it, it's going to raise the value of that one of one digital. Um, but yeah, I, I don't expect that you would not do that in any means. And um, what I expect is that if you sell a um, photograph as an NFT and you call it a one of one, that I have the only digital um, version of that on a blockchain. That's it. Uh, thank you very much because, you know, uh, time is hard for people. And, you know, always my friends are looking out for me and telling me like, oh, you should do this, do this, do this. So I'm just trying to get this perspective from everybody. So thank you for this. I really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, bringing me up and always appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Well, it's good to have friends that look out for you, isn't it? So <laughs> keep them around for sure. Um, but <laughs> go ahead. Oh, yes. Uh, that's the thing. I have a, I'm a blessed with the friendship. So I, I always end up with the good side of friendship. So uh, I, you know, thank God for that. That's really great. Um, that's probably why you're so busy there at your store, is people love to come and uh, <laughs> support you in, in what you're doing there. Thanks so much for the question. Uh, we're going to keep moving the mic around. Um, I think, Adam, you were up next, and then we'll go to Zach. Hey, Adam. Happening. Um, so my question actually got touched on a while ago uh, since I've been up here, so I'm not even going to dig dig that back up. But I had something else come to mind uh, for Alpha, and it was more on the personal level. I know everybody... Um, um, you know, the, we, we hear a lot of the business and all that side. You have, you know, shared some personal things, but you had mentioned about the fishing when you uh, went to visit your friend who you started buying for. I am a huge bass fisher, and I'm curious to know what is your fish of sport? Okay, you're probably going to give me a troll. I love bass fishing too, but that's not what we're doing. So um, we're actually spear fishing. And so it's a. Uh, um, primarily walleye and catfish and we oh. do it the same week of the year every year we've been doing it for about 15 years so we go to we do it a lot um, obviously in the ocean um, but the locally there are a couple lakes that are in the top 10 
um, visibility uh, lakes in North America, actually. They're super um, high visibility, and um, we spearfish in those lakes. And it's kind of a, I don't know, there's probably a few hundred people in a big geographical area that um, actually do this. It's kind of a, a not all super well-known thing but um we have a lot of fun and it's one of my favorite weeks of the year actually man that's awesome i i wouldn't ex- expect that i uh i used to spearfish as a kid but i i do like to bow fish with with compound bow um and yeah uh, my parents they were all from minnesota wisconsin area and uh, walleye muskie northern pike that was those were my fish too but i live out here in the desert in arizona and bass is the the one to, to do for me so cool man i appreciate you sharing that yeah of course so yeah we um we love to eat fish and so um the fish that you actually catch is always the best so it's a lot of fun Amen. Thank you. That gives me even a, a more funny imagination of you walking into the restaurant in your spearfishing clothes, because that's usually like a wetsuit, right? Yeah, we definitely do not go in wetsuits. <laughs> we're, we're dry when we walk in, but we're okay. still in uh, normal fishing attire. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, you're not dripping all over the... the I'm going to drop down, but I had one more question come to mind. Alpha, you can you can take me up on it or not, but when you get your DeLorean in the metaverse, can I have dibs on first shotgun ride? All right, deal. <laughs> Done. All right. We're good. This is recorded. I'm going to... Are there any back right. seats? Are we, are we taking, uh, you know, spots for the back seats? Or is it just two-seater? <laughs> Wear your best PSD, and we'll take a we'll take a fast it's ride around the metaverse. It's gonna turn into a very crowded bus instead. <laughs> That's really funny. Maybe you'll have to like tow a a cart behind you, like they <laughs> like they do on boats. Um, that's really fun. Okay, well, Adam, we want we want some photos of uh, of you in the in the um, passenger seat <laughs> next to Alpha when he's driving his DeLorean in the metaverse. That'll be cool. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's a really great question. Thank you for joining us, Adam. It's always great to have you here. Um, let's go to Zach next. Hey, Zach, good to, good to see you. Likewise, hello, Pam of Subod. Thanks for hosting Alpha. Great to hear your uh, perspective. As always, I couldn't help but uh, come up and pick your brain and ask a few questions. Um, you know, I, I definitely always appreciate your perspectives on the long term, and you never speak about anything on a short term basis. And I think that definitely always sets your uh, what you share apart from others. And I think just. Um, yeah, so, so much value there. So I really appreciate that. And a couple of things I had questions about were, it would obviously be a huge deal if NFTs, I mean, really crypto as well, were recognized as assets and you could borrow off of them. And um, yeah, I was just envisioning, I, I wonder how you envision that happening in the future. If those are going to be new businesses, I feel that seems like a tough sell with some of the I guess, standard, you know, the banking industry as of now. And then my other question was about in the future with displays and with galleries, as that seems to be something of significance, it's maybe being overlooked right now because everybody's amassing all this art, but really it's not consistently displayed in any meaningful way. So, yeah, I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity within um in the physical world to be able to get ahead of some of this 
and and creating physical displays um screens that will actually work for displaying um art in the right way i mean right now we see a lot of people using tvs which is fine we've seen what's happened um with the cost of tvs they just keep going down 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 well i i assume that there's going to be a new big um entry in the market which will be you know more of the digital frames in various sizes and those will start getting better and better and um the prices of them will start coming down a lot so that you can facilitate the display of your digital art in any physical setting and i I believe that that's you know going to be very much part of uh, our future and it's going to help drive some of the demand for nfts in the space um in the virtual world you know that's still developing and um i think that we're going to see a lot of different types of displays of this digital art in the metaverse and um i'm excited to see what's going to happen with it and how it all plays out um but I think that we're still in the very early stages of that. And I think there's probably going to be things that develop that none of us have um, imagined yet. As far as using them as assets and being able to, um, you know, use them for collateral, I agree. It's like, you know, in the traditional world, um, everything's precedented on you know with a bank it's precedented on what is the actual confirmed value and how do we know that um how do we is there liquidity here for it if the bank ends up with it what are we going to do with it and so for just a normal person to walk in you could have a painting by a very famous artist that has a lot of value and if you walked into your local bank and said hey i want to take out a loan on this they're probably going to show you the door. They're not going to um, do that because it just doesn't work. Um, it, it falls outside of what their normal mechanisms are for being able to to determine what the value of collateral, collateral is. Um, that's why there's so much opportunity within this space and with NFTs. So to be able to imagine um, a system where you can value them, you can use them as collateral, you have to reimagine the banking, um, how banking works. In the traditional world, a bank uses your money and then um, you deposit it at the bank. The bank uses that money and that's how they make money. Um, they're providing you some level of security and a f- small level of service in order for you to deposit your money with them. Um, in a world going forward, um, some of that will change. And definitely within Web3, it's going to be different because you can be the bank. Um, you could be the person that's providing the collateral um, for a potential loan or some other type of liquidity opportunity within the space. Um, So it doesn't necessarily take a bank to do it anymore. Um, When we started building out the systems for that, we weren't really thinking in the terms of traditional banks we were looking more at the venture capital world um private equity um hedge funds because they're a a totally different type of liquidity in the system but still you have to provide some semblance of value for what they're taking on as collateral collateral for them to inject liquidity but 
more so than that, it's decentralized. And so if you build, you know, the people that are building the infrastructure for it, um, they're going to build the infrastructure, I believe, in a way to where a traditional um, financial institution could come in and they can provide liquidity at a high level. But somebody could also go in and do it on their own themselves, an individual um, at a very you know minimal level. So it might be 0.1 ETH or 0.2 ETH or 1 ETH that you have to provide liquidity into a system and you could choose to do that if you understood the way it worked and you were comfortable with the mechanisms um, and you were co- comfortable with the collateral. And I think in the fine art world, especially there's, there's ways that, you know, there's pieces that somebody may never be willing to sell to you, but they may need short term liquidity. Um, and so they would be willing to use it as some form of collateral. And if there's um, mechanisms in place that really allow for it, um, it might be your opportunity as a collector, the only opportunity you would ever have to be able to potentially end up with that piece um, if they use it as collateral and then they defaulted on it. Um, and if they don't, you still are making um, a return on your investment um, prior to that default. I don't know if that really makes sense, but um, I see it. I see it being completely outside of the traditional banking world. And um, but you, you still have to have a system in place to where those tokens, it's like the the titles, the licenses are solid and um, we they can't be changed or you can't use them as collateral in, in that system. I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around that and how that would work. Let's say I have a piece that has established value to that other entity I'm working with. And as a collector, I'm using that as collateral. Let's say essentially margin I'm getting, uh, I'm able to borrow off of that. What is the value that that other side has other than if I potentially default that they get to keep that art? What, you know, does that mean that I'm letting them display that? I mean, what are, what are the other use cases um, where they're actually extracting value to the point that they're going to let me borrow off of it? I mean, anytime you borrow money, you pay um, some type of fee for borrowing that money. So, you know, in some form, depending on what the mechanism is, if it's a loan, you're paying interest on that loan. Um, There's other mechanisms that you can use that are um, outside the loan process, which I would see being um, more the future for the space. Um, But there's always going to be a fee for for borrowing money or for using someone else's money. And so if you're the liquidity provider in that situation and you're providing the liquidity, um, you would get some type of return off of it. And um, either worst case or best case scenario for, me, for you, depending on what your perspective is, there would be a default and you would end up with that underlying asset. I understood that makes sense. So it's basically whatever I'm paying in uh interest for borrowing that money but there has to be some sort of system in place where there is some trust that what i have in this collection does have established value and i'll say on that i think that's where i appreciate your conversations on value um because i think you know when you're collecting especially you know the more you collect at scale i can't collect with no in my opinion at least from my perspective with no 
you know, thought of value because I think at the end of the day, that's going to be disrespectful to my wife, to my children. And I think that when you do collect something that might have more established value, like you're saying, that gives you the ability to collect in a different way, you know, whether it's that 20% of your collection where you just literally don't even have to think about it, you completely love it. But, um, you know, there's a, a lot of nuance to that uh, dialogue. So I definitely always, like I said, appreciate what you have to say there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it, it really, it could be disrespectful to your family if, you know, you're if you're spending a, a large part of your, whatever your wealth is, in collecting and that's fantastic that's great but if you're doing it without any heat at all to what the the value may be in the future um you know it could be detrimental to your future and to maybe your family's future etc and so i think there's ways that you can counterbalance that so you can create a balance within that that still allows for you to um experiment and to be able to to really take some chances and risk within it without risking everything um and so that's kind of the idea behind it very cool. Thank you, Zach, for uh, for that question. Um, and we are getting close to wrapping up the space. I want to just say thank you again uh, so much to Alpha for all of your time and great inspiration. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna hear from Dave Yoder before we completely wrap it up. But I wanted to say thank you also to all the other speakers who've joined us and to all the listeners in the room. Um, and we will uh, pass the mic to Dave Yoder, but then uh, we'll wrap it up right after that. Um, Dave, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thanks, Pam, um, and I'll try to keep it short. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, Alpha and uh, Ev and everybody. Um, uh, uh, Alpha, earlier, uh, if I got it right, I think you said that one of the things you look at when you're deciding whether to collect something is how many unsold pieces they have. And as um, one of the photographers is hoping that uh, documentary photography will find a home, uh, a, you know, a vibrant uh, uh, place to grow in in the future um, in a, NFTs now that the editorial market's pretty much tanked. Um, <clears throat> I'm kind of struggling with how to release uh, extensive projects, you know, that are years long um, and you know they can be 30 to 150 photographs that are really not redundant and and you consider them part of the collection or the photo essay as as we would say um but uh you know when you're not salgado um do you uh, uh do you think that they should my impulse is to release everything as a complete photo essay i mean this is what it is and and i'm also attracted to the thought of making it possible to or, or on occasion only selling the photo essay or collection as a unit you know so like if you know if, if uh, you have to buy all of it or or none of it um, and I, I was just like wondering what your thoughts are about um, how to release uh, larger collections or photo essays like that and and whether you'd be interested in something like uh, something that that's only being sold as a, as a complete collection so for me um in pretty much everything i do um within the real world my real life and business and um what i do in web3 i'm very aware always of keynesian economics and the you know there's an equation with supply demand and price and basically um 
it's a proven system within the world and within just about any marketplace that ultimately um, that balance between supply and demand is what determines what your price is. And if there's a lot of supply and there's not enough demand to cover that supply, then the price is going to be low. The price that any one or that the market is going to establish for, for what it is, is going to be low. And when I first came in the space, um, you know, a little over a year ago, and I talked in a few spaces, I would talk about that and um, people would come in and they would argue with me um, extensively about it. And I used to argue about it, but I don't anymore. Um, but I still subscribe to it myself. I believe it completely. And I believe you see it being played out in the market continuously. Um, so it would be great if it didn't work that way, but it seems to always work that way. Um, the more supply you have, if you don't have the demand right now to cover that supply, your price that you're actually going to be able to realize outside of maybe some anomalies and friends is going to be low. And that's totally okay. Um, if that's all right with you, then you should go for it. And that's the way you should do it. You just need to be aware of that. So just be aware of that decision when you're making it. And if that's what you want to do, there's literally nothing wrong with it. And over time, if demand grows for that, then the price will also grow, but it may take a long time. And it may be, um, if, and if that's okay, then that's okay. But if you have an expectation to get a high price for it, and you release a huge supply at once, um, and the demand is not there, it's not going to sell, um, and you're gonna probably struggle with it for quite some time. Um, my suggestion would be, depending on, you know, I don't know anything about what the, the collection would be or any, I don't believe that 100 pieces is too much if you've got the demand. Um, but even if you look at Salgado and you think about how, you know, he's a legend in the physical world and, you know, everyone knows who he is and they, they're the opportunity to collect his work. Well, they released 5,000 pieces. Only 2,500 or so, I think, have uh, minted so far. So that collection hasn't even minted out. The price was $250, which is insanely cheap um, to be able to collect a one-of-one um, art by somebody so famous. But the reason is, I literally and 100% honestly believe that if that collection would have been 200 pieces and they had released 200 pieces or a hundred pieces, they would have been able to generate as much money, probably more money um, from the collection, even if it was just a hundred of the 5,000 pieces, um, because the demand would have far outweighed the supply. But even on somebody legendary, you can oversupply and the market will catch up with it. I have no doubt of that. So I'm obviously um, collecting it and I'm buying it because I believe that the um, demand will catch up with the supply. But you can see what happened, even on somebody who's famous and um, that, you know, everyone would be honored to have a piece of their artwork. You can oversupply it. Um, and if I was an artist um, I probably would not necessarily want to do that. So I think there's things you could do to stage your drops 
and, you know, try to sell it out in stages. Even if you um, release what that entire collection is up front, um, even if you've got, you know, you've done a book and there's a physical book of it in, um, you know, the physical world, I think it's still okay to stage it and to sell it um, 10 or 15 pieces at a time. And really it'll help you because you take away some of the, really the cognitive dissonance that's in the buying process. Um, you don't over um, confuse the, the, the buyer. You don't give them too many choices because there's also an adage in marketing. If there's too many choices, the choice will be nothing um, because people will, they, they can't hardly make a choice sometimes if there's too many things to choose from. So I think the idea of releasing it over time, you might be able to sell it in the same amount of time um, releasing it a few pieces or a lot smaller drops at a time, concentrate on selling those drops. You're going to get a way higher price, a higher price per piece and probably sell it out at the same speed and time frame that you would if you sold, you know, if you dropped it all at once. And um, when you drop it all at once, you're probably going to get a way less, way lower price for it. Um, and that's just from the economic side. It's just looking at the simple economics of it. But you can do it however you want. Um, there's no rules really on how you do that. It's just that it's good to be aware of the literally what drives that pricing within um, a marketplace. And if you're aware of that, then you can just you can make a decision based upon it and, and you can be successful. Thanks, Dave, for that question. I was just waiting for to see if you had anything uh, as a follow-up comment. Um, anything else to add, Dave? Oh, no, that, that was a very generous reply. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Alpha. That makes a lot of sense. Well, we've gone all the way from uh, fishing stories to stories of DeLoreans not yet created. I'm so curious to see what color you're going to choose, Alpha. Um, and then uh, talking about what's what's coming in the future. Um, thank you so much, Alpha, for, for your time uh, to talk with us today. And I also want to say thanks to Ev for the great nerd talk that we had sort of blended in with this whole conversation. And also thanks to Sabode for... Uh, being your co-host. Um, I think it's about time to wrap up, but um, Alpha, do you have any final things you'd like to add? Um, we Again, just thank you so much for your time and candid um, responses to our to our conversation here. Yeah, I would just say, um, remember that I'm just one person, and so uh, the ideas are just ideas, and um, don't put too much stock in them, and um, you know, I think I try to I try to give um, some things to look for in a, a big picture and to look into the future. But obviously, just one person. So don't get too caught up on it. Don't, um, you know, change anything you're doing just because of something you heard me say. Um, I'm talking really fast and a whole lot of different subjects. And so, um, you know, really just spend your time when you're making decisions about things, really think them through, try to get as many perspectives as you can. And, um, you know, think about where the future is going to be and try not to make your decisions just based upon, upon what's going on, you know, in the, in the market right now, especially in this bear market that's slow and, um, you know, just try to look past all of that into the future, have a path, have a plan, and then make your decisions to be able to to really better your your 
opportunity and your um, ability to to meet those goals and to get where you're wanting to go on that path. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Pam, you're an incredible host, and I always uh, enjoy uh, speaking to you. Sabod, Sam, um, you're a um, magician. Uh, the spaces, I don't know how you do it without any sleep, but um, you are my hero uh, for sure in that regard. And so always impress me. And Ev, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I love hearing that nerd um, talk because uh, it's very dear to my heart. And- I think we lost you there at the last comment, Alpha. <laughs> I don't think it's a rugging, but somehow we lost those last couple words. But, um, but Ev, I know. But I want oh, to go say, ahead, Sabote. I just want to say, you know, whenever Alpha speaks, I listen to every single word in absolute depth. But today I've been a little bit distracted because of the car, you know, like I've been Googling it at the same time. I've been uh, exploring the features of the car. So I've been a little bit distracted. That car looks terrific and it's called Alpha 5. I mean, it's so perfect. I thought you were talking about your car, Sabod, that you keep messing up when no. you drive out to the desert to take star pictures. No, the car, the car which Alpha mentioned, I didn't even know that brand existed, very honestly. So I googled it up. I was still confused. I asked Emma in a DM, is this the car Alpha is talking about? And since then, I've been like Googling and f- looking at all the features and completely distracted. Okay, well, <laughs> I think that that's allowed. Um, and Ev, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh and helping us understand some really important uh, aspects of the space that we're all we all find ourselves in. Um, it's great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me and allowing me to do my uh, nerd talks and some comments about the space. Yeah, thanks, Pam. Well, I want to also say thank you to, for everyone for to, for listening. Um, as you know, we are having our Monday um, Slika Darkroom Spaces at one p.m. Pacific, four p.m. Eastern. Um, On Wednesdays, we go back to uh, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. And I wanted to give you just a preview of what we're going to be, who we're going to be talking to over the next couple of weeks. Um, This Wednesday, we're going to be talking with Paulius Uza, who has Foreverlands as his project. Um, He's also a big collector of NFT photography. He's picked up many, many pieces from Sloika photographers. So we'll be excited to hear from him about his collecting style and also about Foreverlands. And then on the 24th, which is Monday, one week from today, we'll be talking with Nick Kalyani, Tech Bubble, um, who I know a lot of you have got a chance to meet in Dubai over this last weekend. Uh, but Nick will be talking with us then. Um, I still have an open slot on the 26th, so taking taking ideas. Um, but then on thir- the 31st, Halloween, we're going to talk with Emma of, uh, of Meta Jungle. So I'm really excited to talk with Emma and um yeah, this is a, a really great lineup. Um, I really appreciate everyone tuning in and listening. If you missed any part of this or would like to re-listen to it, of course, you can listen to it on the Sloika Darkroom podcast. Uh, you can find it anywhere um, you listen to podcasts. Um, one place you could start would be anchor.fm um, and look for Sloika Darkroom there. And, of course, it's on Apple and all the rest. But um, if you like what you hear, please give us some stars. Um, and that goes a long way. It's kind of like a retweet. <laughs> it's free, right? Um, but anyway, thank you again, Alpha, for joining us. Um, this has really been a great conversation. I love learning a little bit more about um, about your background as a collector and about your love of art and, of course, uh, your vision for the future. And I hope um, that we get a chance to talk again soon. There goes Kirit <laughs> with our sound effect. That was a perfect wrap-up. Thank you, Kirit. We'll say bye for now and uh, see you guys all back on Wednesday. Thanks a lot.